Your brain needs support, and new Ollie Brainy Chews are a delightful way to take care of your cognitive health. Made with scientifically backed ingredients like Thai ginger, L theanine, and caffeine, Brainy Chews support healthy brain function and help you find your focus, stay chill, or get energized. Be kind to your mind and get these nootropic chews at ollie.com. That's O-L-L-Y dot These statements have not been evaluated by the Food and Drug Administration. This product is not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease. This is E2, Entrepreneurs Exposed, the podcast where we speak with all kinds of great entrepreneurs and creators doing amazing things in business and beyond. So we just passed Blue Monday, a date which is becoming widely known as the most depressing day of the year. Who knows if there's any truth to that, but according to the WHO, what is true is that over 300 million people globally suffer from anxiety and about 1 billion are afflicted by disorders that studies have found could be treated by psychedelic assisted therapy. Today we chat with Joseph Del Morel, a serial entrepreneur and the current co-founder and CEO of Field Trip Health, a Canadian public company dedicated to healing through therapeutic psychedelics. Prior to Field Trip, Canvas RX, a company Joseph had previously founded with his partners, was acquired by Aurora Cannabis in 2016, where he then spent time on the board of directors before diving into this emerging space, which is slowly changing how we think about the future of mental health and the treatment available to those in need. In this one, we discuss the mission of Field Trip why there is so much excitement about the space, key questions people should be asking themselves if they want to determine whether they're a candidate for this type of treatment, Peter Thiel-backed Compass Pathways, an industry company trailblazer pursuing FDA approval for its synthetic version of psilocybin, and what the future holds for Field Trip and its industry counterparts. And with that intro out of the way, let's get right to the show. So give me a sense of Field Trip's mission. Like, what is it? Who is it for? Why does it matter? Field Trip's mission is to uh, bring the world to life through psychedelics. There's a huge mental health crisis right now in the world, and it's being made worse by the pandemic. So the latest numbers we've seen is that depression rates and suicidal ideation have tripled just over during the course of the pandemic. And so there's a massive need for new approaches to mental health. Mm-hmm. What's worked in the past has been you know, therapy and SSRIs. And the reality is that SSRIs are not that effective. They have limited improvements on depression scales, on average a two-point improvement on the Hamilton depression score out of 52. Uh, for many people, they don't work at all or they, or they work in a limited way but have significant enough side effects that there's a very large uh, non-adherence rate to SSRIs. Mm-hmm. And it's it's not a cure, right? It, it's, it doesn't solve the problem. It sort of numbs, numbs the problem a little bit. With psychedelics, the promise is there of a th- therapy that can give immediate relief compared to SSRIs, which can take weeks, but also create long-lasting, sustained relief for people uh, in the clinical trials that are underway right now in the order of, of relief between doses so it works in a whole different way than anything that we've been able to use uh, to date. Yeah, and the timing has been pretty remarkable, as you point out. So this spike in mental health awareness in the wake of the pandemic is huge. But pre-COVID, there was profound research coming out of Johns Hopkins 
the Imperial College of London and other prominent institutions um, related to this industry. So how long have you been following the evolution of the space? So when we worked in the cannabis industry, we were obviously exposed to many people who strongly uh, were advocates of plant-based medicines. And uh, so we've been hearing about the promise of psychedelics for uh, years now. Um, at the beginning, when we were, you know, back in 2016, 2017, 2018, it was mostly anecdotal stories from uh, people, some of our patients, uh, friends who had life-changing experiences with a single dose of a psychedelic drug and supportive therapy. They, to us at the time, seemed almost too good to be true, almost too good to believe. So we spent actually a lot of time digging into the science and speaking to everybody we could. It took us maybe eight or nine months of those types of conversations and internal discussion to really figure out how do you create a company in a space where almost all of the molecules and the therapies that we want to use are currently scheduled and illegal. And so it took us some time to figure out the model that we thought could actually create real long-lasting value in such an early phase of this industry. So I think when people think about psychotherapy uh, in the context of psychedelics, uh, they maybe just have a superficial understanding of um, you know, psilocybin, um, MDMA, ketamine, uh, but they don't fully understand the differences and or which ones are legal or illegal. So give me a sense of how that breaks down. So the current, currently the only legal psychedelic drug that we can prescribe and we can uh, use in our therapy programs at our clinics is ketamine. Ketamine is a dissociative psychedelic drug. It's most commonly used as an anesthetic. It's a very safe drug. It's been around for decades uh, it's used in children's hospitals for uh, sedation or anesthetic for children. Um, so it's a well-studied and safe drug. And at uh, relatively low doses, the, the doses that we use in uh, when it's used in mental health, it creates a dissociative type of effect for our patients. And we can use that to do the psychedelic-assisted psychotherapy. And for those that might be interested in what's happening with psilocybin and MDMA and other drugs for that matter, What's going on there? So there are uh, three trials underway in, at the FDA for psychedelic drugs. Two are for psilocybin. So one is uh, Compass Pathways, which is um, a for-profit company uh, recently listed on the NASDAQ that's um, pursuing approval for uh, psilocybin for um, treatment-resistant depression. Uh, it's in phase 2B. There's, then there's also USONA Institute, which is a nonprofit also advancing psilocybin for major depressive disorder. They're in phase two as well. And then uh, the, the closest drug to approval is actually MDMA, mm -hmm. which is being pushed forward by MAPS, which is the uh, nonprofit actually that's advancing the, uh, the clinical trials for, for MDMA. And they're using it for PTSD with actually quite incredible results out of their phase two trials. So who who is I mean we touched on you know the obvious folks that suffer from anxiety suffer from depression I would imagine you know PTSD who else can benefit from this kind of treatment and the second part of this question is for those that might be interested what are the key questions that they should be asking themselves if they want to determine whether or not they're a candidate for this type of treatment Sure so the the main categories right now that we're treating and that most of the clinical trials are in depressive disorders, anxiety disorders, PTSD. 
our broad category is treatment resistant mental health conditions. So, you know, mostly this is not used as a first line treatment. Mm-hmm. The, the trials that are underway, especially in academic settings, are looking at psychedelics for a wide range of conditions. So, you know, I think there's promise there that we'll see a pretty broad application of psychedelics to a number of mental health disorders. Um, we have to wait to see, you know, what the science says, but there's definitely promise for a large range of conditions. What is the role, if there is one, what, what is the role of the pharmacist going forward in this industry? Well, the pharmacist uh, plays a key role right now in compounding the ketamine formulations. Mm-hmm. So, uh, for example, in our Toronto clinic, we use rapid dissolve tablets of ketamine. Um, in our U.S. clinics, we're doing intramuscular injections of ketamine. And so that's that's all done at the compounding pharmacy. Going forward with the psychedelic drugs that we hope will be approved, psilocybin, MDMA, and in the future, our own drug candidate, which is called FT-104, the way those will be distributed isn't fully understood yet. It's, you know, some of them will be controlled substances. And so there will be a, a role for distribution, controlled distribution of these drugs, perhaps through centralized pharmacies, but that's uh, still to be seen. If I'm an individual and I'm suffering from one of these ailments and I'm curious and I want to take the first step, what do I do? So let's start from the beginning. You, you get To get into the clinic, you have to be pre-screened by a psychiatrist who makes sure that you'll be a suitable candidate for Got the it. treatment. Mm-hmm. And if you are, then you'd meet with our uh, one of our therapists who will explain the program, onboard you onto our um, uh, online platform that we call Portal. And that's where we have all of the patient education. There's videos, exercises, uh, preparatory work that prepare people for having their first psychedelic experience. There's, you know, we'll talk about this, but there's a huge importance to setting the proper intention and um, being ready for a psychedelic experience to get the most out of it. So that all happens at the beginning. Then you'll come in and uh, and typically a nurse practitioner will administer the the ketamine. Um, And then the patient sits in a very comfortable dosing room. We have these super comfortable zero gravity chairs that lean all the way back. Uh, the patient wears an eye mask, typically headphones playing a curated list of um, psychedelic music, and they have a weighted blanket on them. So they're you know very comfortable. Uh, typically the ketamine experience lasts for about an hour or so. During that time, there's a therapist in the room with the patient if the patient wants to speak, uh, or even just to hold space, the patient is, uh, the therapist is there with the patient. They're also being supervised by a nurse who has um, a remote monitoring device attached to the patient so we can monitor uh, the patient's uh, vitals and make sure that the patient is comfortable and safe. After about that one hour of ketamine experience, the, the patient uh, starts coming to a little bit and they'll uh, at that point have a light form of of therapy that we call exploratory therapy, where they just talk with the therapist about the experience they had, the thoughts they had under the influence of the ketamine. And often our therapists will hear things like uh, from patients that say, you know, they've they've been dealing with problems often for years or decades, and under the influence of the ketamine, we're able to see it in a whole new light or thought about it from a whole different perspective that they'd never experienced before. And that's really the power of the, it, if you look at a patient's brain under an fMRI when they've had a psychedelic drug, you can actually see the brain connecting in ways that it doesn't usually. And you know, when when you ask a person what that 
translates to after they, they uh, come out of the experience, they'll they'll say things like these, uh, like what I mentioned before, the new revelations, uh, new insights. And then it's the job of the therapist and the patient to take those new insights and transform them into changes in behavior, changes in habits, uh, changes in their daily activities that can lead to long-lasting improvements in their uh, mood. Mm-hmm. Um, do you have enough data at this point to determine whether or not these outcomes are permanent? Are they temporary? Like in the context of the life cycle of treatment, how should patients be thinking about it? It depends on the drug is the answer. So with what we have right now, ketamine is gives gives good effect, good immediate effect, and it can last on the order of weeks to months with the support of psychotherapy. Uh, so patients who have completed our six the six dosing sessions, um, we see significant improvements on average immediately uh, following the first administration all the way through the program, but then also sustained past one month. Now, with psilocybin and MDMA, the effects can be much longer. So in a psilocybin trial, we saw a uh, for end-of-life patients with, with distress, we found they found results that showed significant improvements in their depression scores, even at the five-year follow-up. And so, you know, there can be very significant long-lasting effects from psilocybin and MDMA. So we're excited about the promise of those molecules once they get approved. You mentioned that having your psychiatrist determine that you must be a suitable candidate is sort of the first step. You know, one of the issues that people have, at least here in Canada, is that they can't access psychiatrists. They might have mental illness uh, disorders that have been undiagnosed for a long time, um, but they can't access therapy. And so how do you think about that? I mean, if you're trying to address this overwhelming increase in patients who are suffering, how do you do that? So access to good quality mental health care is clearly an issue in Canada and uh, and everywhere, really. And so that's one of the big problems that uh, our patients face. Many of them are, you know, haven't had good enough access to good mental health care in the in their past. It's it's an issue. And uh, you know, for for patients who come to us that don't have access to a don't have a current psychiatrist or therapist we're able to connect them with psychiatrists in the community. We'll see them. Uh, so we, we, we can get around that issue, but it, it, you know, it doesn't solve the, for our, for our patients, but it doesn't solve the, the, the broader problem. That's one of the reasons that we're particularly excited about psychedelics is that, you know, we see it as a, as a, as a way to broaden the conversation around mental health, to make talking about mental health be something more akin to uh, going to the gym and taking care of your body. There's a preventative sort of wellness aspect to this as well, where we think that psychedelics could be the catalyst to having those types of discussions and having people be open to looking at their mental health as something that they have to proactively take care of. Uh, and I think that psychedelics could be could be the avenue to make that uh, make that possible. Do you see the barriers being um, about equal in all of these markets in which you're operating? So there's five markets currently where field trip exists, Toronto, New York, Los Angeles, Chicago, and Amsterdam. Um, As it relates to this access to mental health, who's most progressive versus who's, you know, falling behind? That's a great question. Uh, So in Amsterdam, uh, it's it's a different market. In Amsterdam, we're, because of the regulations there, we're actually able to use truffles that contain psilocybin as part of our treatment. And so um, in, in Amsterdam, we'll actually be doing psilocybin-assisted psychotherapy 
uh, with our patients. Uh, that'll be the first time we do that when we open in uh, March of 2021. In the other markets where we're limited to using ketamine right now, in the, the most progressive uh, is likely Los Angeles. They have, you know, they've been at the forefront of the wellness uh, industry for a long time. And so what we see in Los Angeles and the local regulations allow us to, to see patients and, and treat patients with conditions that, uh, for example, in Canada, our psychiatrists and physicians may not be comfortable yet. And so they're, they're definitely at the forefront in Toronto. We are really focused on uh, seeing people with treatment-resistant mental health conditions, whereas you know in Los Angeles and to a lesser extent uh, New York, we're able to see patients with a bit of a broader range of conditions. Mm -hmm. What are some of those conditions that therapists may not be comfortable with here that patients are accessing in LA, for example? So a patient with a major depressive disorder that maybe hasn't tried two or three or four conventional treatments. You know, can can probably, if they're you know have no other contraindications, get approved to be to be seen at our Los Angeles clinic. But in, in Toronto right now, it's really focused on depression and PTSD. So we actually have a, a recently started PTSD protocol that we've been working with Canadian military veterans on, and um, we actually just had our first couple of veteran patients go through the entire program and had significant breakthroughs and uh, really good results. So we're looking forward to really expanding that out. There's a, there's a huge need for uh, mental health help for uh, our military veterans in Canada, uh, specifically those dealing with PTSD. Mm -hmm. I know our system works very differently in, in Canada than the U.S. I'm just curious to understand the costs that one might incur if they want to go down this path. Is some of it covered? Is any of it covered by OHIP, for example, here in Ontario? So unfortunately, OHIP does not cover these types of therapies yet. So that's something that you know I hope the the government will uh, will move on, given the the prevalence of the mental health crisis in Ontario and, and in Canada generally. Mm -hmm. But right now, it's private pay service, so patients are paying out of pocket the total cost of the of the whole protocol, which includes um, uh, the six ketamine sessions and four therapy sessions, is uh, four thousand seven hundred dollars. So we, we're very aware that that is uh, cost prohibitive for some people. And we do have a compassionate access program where we try to get as many people in as we can. In terms of coverage in Canada, some patients are getting coverage through their extended benefits, health benefits programs to cover the psychotherapy aspects of what we do. Mm -hmm. uh, but the ketamine administration itself is typically not covered. In the U.S., it's also private pay. And, uh, but we are seeing more and more coverage in the U.S., uh, so patients are getting, you know, varies by insurance company there, but patients are getting somewhere between zero and seventy percent of the cost of the treatment package covered. Mm -hmm. um, okay, so we'll shift gears a little bit to the business side of things. So your company, obviously, we've talked about the clinics, uh, we've talked about the affiliation with doctors. Um, you're in five major cities at this point. I assume you have expansion plans. Are you aggressively pursuing the drug development and drug manufacturing side of things going forward? Absolutely. That's where I see massive opportunity uh, for the business and just to advance the treatment options that people uh, can access. So uh, when we started this, our thesis was that there was low-hanging fruit available, types of opportunities available in psychedelic drug development that large pharma companies had just not focused on that area. And so we brought on our first scientific advisor, uh, his name is Dr. Mike Ehlers, 
He was the former head of R&D at uh, there earlier this year and joined us as our senior scientific advisor. Um, so with him, we he agreed with our thesis, which was which was great uh, for us. You know, we had no previous experience in drug development, and uh, we set up a search to find a chief science officer who could really drive forward the project of identifying novel chemical entities, so, so new psychedelic molecules that could have preferential um, preferential effects in, in our patients. And so what we were specifically looking for was a psychedelic drug that was potent because we know that the, you know, the strength, the potency of the, uh, of the psychedelic experience is related to the outcomes, uh, but also shorter acting. So psilocybin can be four to six hour experiences. MDMA can be up to 10 hour experiences for patients. And in the clinical trials that are underway with those two drugs, patients often have to stay in the clinic the entire day and even overnight in some cases. And so that just from a running a clinic perspective and getting, you know, getting to an efficient business process where you can uh, put patients through a clinic, that just doesn't work. So we said, all right, let's try to find one with a shorter duration. In the range of two to three hours, we felt would, would be uh, ideal. That's long enough for a person to have uh, an, a good, deep psychedelic experience, uh, have time to process their thoughts and emotions, but also get a person into and out of uh, the clinic in a, in a morning or an afternoon. And so um, our scientists, uh, we brought on a chief, our chief science officer, his name is uh, Nathan Bryson, a very experienced uh, MIT chemist who looked at the compounds that were uh, out there in the literature and the patent literature and scientific literature uh, uh, from the last 50 years, as well as you know, using anecdotal reports from, from people who've had trips with psychedelic drugs, report them on the internet. And so based on all that information, we identified a couple of families that seemed promising. We synthesized a number of molecules in those families, uh, tested them, and we identified one that met our criteria. We gave it the uh, very catchy name of FT-104, <laughs> and that Rolls that off the tongue. It just rolls off the tongue. That molecule um, has uh, is based on a known psychedelic molecule uh, that that has an, enough anecdotal information around it that we feel very comfortable as to its efficacy and safety, but is different in uh, significant enough ways that we can uh, make it a, a better drug than its base molecule, full IP protection on it, mm-hmm. and so. You know, IP in this case is quite important if you want, as a small company, if you want to advance a drug all the way through to approval, you really need IP to secure those the partnerships and um, the the financing and the funding you'll need to to get this to get a drug all the way through approval. Yeah, and how long and so does that process take? It'll it'll be five to six years. So we're in preclinical pre preclinical phase right now. So the preclinical results have come back showing showing that the drug does have the two to three hour uh, trip time that's been confirmed with our um, uh, animal studies. There's an interesting uh, rat model uh, of a psychedelic uh, effect called the head twitch response. So when you give a, a rat a psychedelic drug that hits the correct receptor in the brain, which is called the 5-HT2A receptor, it, it twitches its head in a certain way. And so you see that when you give a, a rat uh, a, a drug that hits that receptor and you don't see it when you give them other drugs. And so we're, 
we're confident that the the drug is having is hitting the right receptor and creating uh, those types of effects in our model. And so we're excited about the the drug. It meets it meets all of our criteria. It has we have a freedom to operate on it, so that you know we know we have good ability to get this patented and not be infringing on anyone else. And uh, so we're we're looking forward to getting that into into humans in our phase one trial, which should start at the uh, second half of next year. Let's come back to the the setting of intentions. So when you suggest um, that there the setting of intentions has to happen as you know the first phase of of this whole experience, um, what do you mean by this, and and how important is it? So everybody comes to the clinic with different issues that they're struggling with, um, or they wouldn't be there. Uh, so we ask them to intentions of what they want to think about and get out of the experience when they come to the clinic. And so the therapists help them think through that and go through that process. We also have the technology platform that we call Portal, which has a series of exercises and videos that helps prepare the person for what to expect and you know why setting intention is important. What we found as a general as a general comment, what we found is that patients who come into our program having done more of the work upfront in terms of really thinking about their issues, especially those who have done their significant amounts of therapy before and have been able to, to sort of process some of their issues before they get to the clinic, seem to have really good, really good outcomes. And so it's clear that going into the experience um, with, with the right intention in mind and having thought through what they want to get out of it is is, is helpful to getting the best possible outcomes. Co-founders, um, five co-founders, excuse me, sounds like quite a lot. <laughs> it's somewhat unusual, I guess you could say, but there's obvious benefits. I mean, in terms of resources and, and uh, horsepower, but are, are there challenges related to operating a business with five co-founders that you didn't anticipate? You know, I when I think of the amount of work that's going on inside the company and the amount of issues and, uh, you know, things that come up every day, I can't imagine doing it any other way right now. I can completely imagine having issues working with four um, strangers or people I just met, uh, but we're fortunate that, you know, we've all known each other a long time. We went through the incredible roller coaster ride of being startup founders in our last business in an explosive growing industry in cannabis uh, all the way through to you know selling the company and exiting and at the end of all that we're still friends and wanted to work together so I'm really that's one of the things I'm most happy about uh, in terms of you know the success of our last business it was a huge huge business success for all of us and for our shareholders it was a great it was a great win but the, the fact that you know my co-founders and I uh, still wanted to work together and uh, and hang out every day. You know that's that's equally important to me. I'm just curious to understand like your thinking behind the timing of when you start businesses. You were initially in home services, and then you jump into cannabis, and and now you're into psychedelics. It, it feels like this transition from home services into cannabis specifically was was amazingly timed. And now, of course, uh, it feels like this timing with respect to field trip health is also really well-timed. So how do you mm-hmm. think about it? So since I've been a child, since I was a child, I've, I've been interested in forecasting and trends and, uh, and what the future looks like. So I, I, I'm probably more future focused than, than most people, probably more future focused than is uh, healthy, but I, I tend to think about the future a lot and, and how things can roll out. I remember when I was uh, a teenager, I subscribed to the Futurist magazine 
and and read that every month when it arrived. And so that's the way my uh, my brain works a little bit. And so I, you know, I think you know we we looked at we looked at what was out there. We looked at the trends, and I think we did a pretty good job of extrapolating from a little bit of data in the early days in terms of you know how things were looking and and modeling it versus other other uh, industries and, and growth patterns and said well you know even though it's clear that with the the trends that are uh, happening in society and in business that you know this is something that will see tremendous growth and we we you know got really fortunate with timing we're the first medical cannabis clinic company to open in Canada because we were first we got a lot of attention we had tremendous patient demand that was driven by being first mover. And uh, we also saw sort of the, the writing on the wall a little bit when the, when Prime Minister Justin Trudeau was looking like he was likely to be elected. And the part of his platform was to legalize cannabis in our business being purely medical. You know, that was a risk for us. So I think we, you know, we, we sort of foresaw some of the uh, opportunities and some of the risks and, uh, and reacted accordingly. And that informed the timing of the sale of our business with psychedelics. Uh, when we started looking at it, it felt in many ways similar to the earliest days of the cannabis industry. Mm. There is huge uh, excitement and opportunity, very small space in terms of number of people who were actively working on it. But if you looked at the trends in terms of the demand side, so you know clearly mental health is an issue that's not getting better and the treatment options are not great as well as uh, the scientific advancements. So the clinical trials uh, were advancing, the academic studies that were coming out were showing more and more promise, but it hadn't really uh, hadn't really sort of broken into the mainstream at the time that we started looking at it yet. Mm -hmm. You know, the first mover advantage thing. You mentioned Peter Thiel's company earlier, Compass Pathways, uh, which I think now is approaching a market cap of just under 2 billion. They went public on the NASDAQ in September. Were they a benchmark at all? Like, were you watching this company's trajectory over time? Did you even care what they were doing? Uh, no, absolutely. We care. And uh, we had many conversations with them. And they, their their backers are great, Peter Thiel and others. But their management team is also great. You know, they've got a great team executing on a very promising uh, drug there. And so, yeah, definitely we're watching them closely. The markets obviously are very excited about psychedelics right now. The capital markets are. Mm -hmm. um, we've seen tremendous run-ups in in many of the really compass stands above the others. They they have been able to attract a very solid base of biotech investors as well as you know a large number of retail investors who are interested in the story. So we're excited about uh, about compass, and we we know we we hope that they get their drug to market quickly. It's a drug that will happily use at our clinics to, to help our patients. Mm -hmm. uh, so definitely we keep an eye on them. Do you think this market size is potentially larger over time as compared with the cannabis industry? So our thesis from the beginning was that this industry would uh, evolve in two parallel paths. One, a purely medical path mm -hmm. uh, with FDA approved drugs where the cost is borne by uh, healthcare payers, so insurance coverage. Uh, and that's what we'll see, hopefully, if MDMA and psilocybin and eventually FT-104 get approved by uh, the FDA and Health Canada. And the second, a, a parallel market, which is a more of a wellness market. And that's what you're seeing happen in Oregon and to some extent already in Canada, where 
in Oregon, they announced they they passed Measure 109, which is uh, a measure that legalizes psilocybin services in the in the state, starting in two years. So it'll be the first legal jurisdiction for the administration of psilocybin therapy uh, in North America, and we think it'll be similar to the uh, cannabis market, where state by state uh, we'll see more states legalize uh, over the next few years, and there'll be access to psilocybin and psilocybin therapies for people who uh, want to access it, not just for those who have a diagnosed condition and a prescription. Um, the, the, the measure in Oregon is very clear that it allows access to anybody who doesn't have a contraindication, who is uh, an adult and, and willing to uh, and wants to access it. So we think that's the right model. It's a controlled, it's a controlled uh, administration, controlled sale, controlled grow, uh, licensed by the government. So it's done in a responsible way, but it doesn't artificially limit access to only those who uh, have a medical prescription. That's one of the issues that we saw uh, with a with the medical cannabis market, where uh, in places like Venice Beach in California, you could go and see a doctor uh, who would basically issue a prescription uh, to just about anybody who walked in the door. So they were using the medical system as a way to effectively legalize recreational or at least wellness access to cannabis. And so I think it's better to just acknowledge the fact that psychedelics can have really positive impacts on people who aren't clinically diagnosed with, you know, chronic mental health conditions. Um, you know, one of the things that we'd like to do as a company in the coming, you know, 10 years is to get access out to people who want to use psychedelics to improve themselves, even if they aren't sick. You know, I think everybody can benefit from uh, consciousness expansion, from thinking more deeply about themselves. Uh, there's great, there's interesting evidence about using psychedelics to enhance creativity, uh, empathy, and a bunch of other sort of pro-social uh, things that you know can come out of having psychedelic experiences. And on that note, I think we'll we'll wrap up. So people can find out more at fieldtriphealth.com. Psychedelic therapies that bring you to life. Uh, where else? Should they be investigating, researching, uh, learning more about this space? So uh, we have an investor website as well. So fieldtriphealth.com is our website for people who are interested in the clinics and becoming a, a patient. Uh, we have meetfieldtrip.com, which is our investor portal. Uh, we're publicly traded on the Canadian Securities, Securities Exchange. Uh, and all the information for people who are interested in, in our investor website is at meetfieldtrip.com. Joseph, thanks, man. Thanks for coming on. Thank you so much. It's been a pleasure. That's it, guys, for today. Thanks so much for listening. E2 is brought to you by Scriberbase. Want to build recurring revenue for your business? Visit Scriberbase.com for more info. If you enjoy the show, download, share, or subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. You can also visit us at glow.fm slash E2 to become a supporter. Until next time, make today count with whatever it is you're working on. Welcome to the Candle Power Hour. Come with us backstage, behind the scenes of show business spanning over four decades and bringing you the experiences that can only be told by the people who were there. 
Our guests are from the A-list, the F-list, and everyone in between. Get set for some of the most insane, hilarious, and inspiring stories you will ever hear. I'm Mercury. And I'm Diego. Your host for the, the Candle, Candle Power, Power Hour. Hour. Hey there, I'm DC. I host the Rock Podcast, Back to the Arena, the Interviews. It's about a 30-minute podcast where I talk one-on-one with a band who has released new music. You can find us on all the best podcast sites like Spotify, Apple, Google, iHeartRadio, and more. If you're a rock fan like me, subscribe today to Back to the Arena, the interview. Electric Acid. Electric Acid. 